Hello, this is Pastor Don from the Atlantic Evangelical Free Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check us out on the web at AtlanticFreeChurch.com. In the meantime, I hope the sermon you're about to hear draws you closer to the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. We can have uh, Sherry Clemson come up for the scripture reading. Scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against this anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2. Well, good morning. It's good to gather together. I want to say welcome to those of you who are uh, worshiping with us from home or wherever you may be online. A uh, reminder to you folks and to those of us here in the room that this morning is Communion Sunday, and so we will be, uh, after the sermon, I'll pray, and then we'll go right into uh, sharing the bread and the cup together as that symbol of what Christ has done for us and how he did it. And so if you are uh, worshiping with us at home, we invite you to, even, even now, kind of while I'm doing a little bit of intro stuff here, grab those uh, crackers or bread or whatever you have at home, and some sort of fruit of the vine to join with us at home as you participate with us here. And hopefully you folks all received one of these little cups when you came in. If you didn't, we'll get you one before we, after the sermon, before we take communion together. These are available for us here in the room. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning. We have finished with Matthew, and we did a couple of other things there in May. Uh, no, this is May. There in April. Um, and uh, this morning, I'd like to start just kind of a short series through Psalms. Uh, not all of the Psalms. That wouldn't be a short series. But for the next three months, uh, when I'm in the pulpit, I'd like us to uh, just look at some different Psalms. Um, we're not going to go in any particular order, just some different themes that have stood out to me as ones I'd like us to think about together. Uh, a couple of them are holiday-related, Mother's Day, Father's Day. There's some nice psalms that real, work real well with those as well. So a little bit of a sampler approach to the psalms for the next few Sundays. And we're going to start this morning in Psalm 2. So uh, please do open to that if you didn't before when Sherry read it. And uh, we're going to look at that psalm together this morning. And so I'm going to lead us in prayer and ask for God's help, and then we'll jump right on it. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here. Thank you for the grace that sustains us. It is so good to live under the, uh, the protective care uh, of your, your uh, spirit who lives within us and, and hovers over this earth even still. Thank you for uh, the grace and mercy of Jesus, which powers us each and every day and comforts us. Uh, Lord, we want to pray now that you would be our teacher, that you would speak by your spirit through these words 
uh, using me as, as, a, as your vessel, so that we together, every one of us who, in this room and online who hears this sermon will come away from this better equipped to believe in you and to trust in you day in and day out. And so we invite you now here, in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, I saw a magazine ad for one of those uh, financial services companies. I don't remember specifically what the company did, but, but it was one of those companies where you give them your savings, whatever you got, and uh, they take care of it for you. And so they'll, you know, they invest it or whatever magic people like that do, I don't even know. But uh, when you need it, whether you're going to retire or college you're saving for, whatever it is you're saving for, they'll, they'll take care of it for you and give it back to you. And, uh, and so you say, well, that sounds like kind of a boring ad. Why would you remember that? Well, well the reason I remember it is that it was actually a very good ad. Uh, it's uh, very effective in that sense. Uh, see, it, there was a picture, it was a full-page ad, and it had a picture of a man standing on a bridge. And he was looking down into a deep gorge far below him. And uh, oh, the other thing about this man is he wasn't just kind of standing on the bridge, kind of looking down over the railing, that sort of thing. He actually was in the process of launching himself off the bridge. He had just leapt off of this bridge. You're like, wow, that got dark. <laughs> Where is he going with that? Well, here's the thing. Uh, yes, he was in this ad. He was leaping off of the bridge, but tied around his legs was a harness. And attached to that harness was this long cord, which was attached to the bridge. And as you looked at this, you realized, uh, no, he's not jumping off the bridge. This is, uh, he's bungee cord jumping. This man was bungee cord jumping off the bridge. And so it was kind of a, a cool picture because it showed him in the very process of leaping off the bridge and doing this. And uh, th- th- was, uh, that was the visuals. And there were only a few words, very few words in this ad. There was an arrow and the arrow was pointing to the man and the arrow said, you. And there was another arrow pointing to the bungee cord and that arrow said, us the financial services company that wants to take care of your money for you. And then at the bottom of the ad were were these words. It said, trust. It's what everything comes down to. Believe it or not, that's the message of Psalm 2. That picture of a man bungee cord jumping off of a bridge. it's, It's a lot like the message in Psalm 2 because this Psalm teaches that your life, my life, everybody's life really does come down to who we trust. Like the ad said, everything, trust, it's what everything comes down to. Uh, If you were here on the very first Sunday of the year, back on uh, January 2nd or 3rd or whatever it was this year, uh, you might remember we looked at Psalm 1. That's how I chose to open this year. We looked at Psalm 1. And uh, this is a little bit of a connection to that because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 go together. Uh, They form, uh, if you think of the Psalter as a a whole book, it's 150 distinct poems or chapters, but, but it's a collection of them, and if you think about it as, as, as a whole collection, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introduction. They're intentionally put together as the introduction to the book, and the two themes of the two together introduce the entire book. And there's a lot of things that tie them together. One of the key things that tie them, if you just want to, one, one example of what I mean, if you have your Bible open, you can see this. Psalm 1 opens with the word blessed. Blessed is, and it focuses on a man. Blessed is that solitary individual who lives the way God wants him to live. That's what Psalm 1 is about. And then Psalm 2 is going to end that way. And so you get this bracketing effect with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 2 broadens it out to all the people who take refuge in the Lord. And so Psalm 1 focuses on the right way to live. The right way to live is to live God's way. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 2 says, now here's how you're going to do it. And so Psalm 2 tells us the way to live God's way, and the way to live God's way is to do what the end of the 
psalm says it's to take refuge in or to trust in the lordship of jesus christ and so that's what this psalm is about it's about trusting in and really not just passively trusting in but but actively submitting to just like that man submits to that bungee cord as he dumps off that bridge uh, submitting to trusting in the lordship of jesus christ and so psalm two makes the case for that it makes the case for trusting in the lord and i want to show you the three reasons it gives and so that's kind of our outline this morning i want to talk about three reasons why trusting in jesus letting him be lord of everything in your life really is not just a good way to live but the best way to live that's what we learn in psalm 2 so so let's take a look at this uh, at this psalm together Reason number one, the first reason Jesus, trusting in Jesus is the wisest way to live, is that the alternative to trusting Jesus is a lost cause. There's a strong warning sense to Psalm 2, and and that's what we get in the first six verses, actually. It's half the psalm. Not trusting the Lord is a a hopeless endeavor that will lead to certain destruction. Uh, That's what we get in verses 1 through 6. So look at it. I'm going to start, I'm going to take this in stanzas. There are four of them. We're going to take each one in turn. So the first stanza, because Psalms is poetry, so we we talk in that kind of language. Uh, Stanza one is verses one through three, and it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So, uh, the first stanza, and that's, like I said, that's verses 1 through 3. There are four stanzas, 12 verses. The math works real nice with this one. Uh, The first stanza shows a world in rebellion. The world is in rebellion. That's the picture you get in verses 1 through 3. I picture it as there's a mob outside the gates. There's a mob outside the gates, and they're armed with pitchforks and swords and cannons and missiles and everything else they can get their hands on. They're armed to the teeth, and they are rebels. That's verses 1 through 3. They are rebels to the core. They are sick of living under the king, and they want to overthrow him. They want to get rid of him. And you see this in the different language there in verse 1. The people's plot. There's a plot. They're conspiring, it says. They're, they're planning. Um, and, and their plotting is angry. Right? They're, they're raging, it says. And so this isn't kind of a cold, calculating sort of plotting or a bunch of you know, people sitting in a back smoke-filled room kind of coldly planning. No, they're raging. The nations rage, it says. And not only are they raging, but they're cooperating in their rage, which is kind of a, a, you know, a strong picture. You and I know how hard it is to get the nations to cooperate on anything. Right? If you ever try to see two nations make a treaty or three nations cooperate on something, it's, it's even just a few is very difficult to do. And yet this has all the nations in on this plot. They are taking counsel together, it says in verse 2. And who are they taking counsel again? Who is this raging plot against? Uh, verse 2 says it's the Lord. They're plotting against the Lord, and, and uh, your Bible probably has that in small caps uh, because that's the proper name of God is used there. So, so it's Yahweh, it's Jehovah. They're plotting against the Lord. They're rebelling against the one true God. That's what you get in verses 1 through 3. Uh, and it's not just that, as if that wasn't enough. Not only are they plotting against the Lord, but they're plotting against his anointed one. 
That's where they're, who their rebellion is against. Um, in Hebrew, that phrase, so you have anointed, anointed one in your, in your translation probably. Uh, it's actually the Hebrew word Messiah. It's, it's, it's the Messiah, or however you say it in Hebrew. Uh, it, it's, the, it's the very same word. And so it's the, it's, it's, they're plotting against, they're rebelling against God and against the one he's chosen, against his anointed one. It's helpful at this point, as we think about this psalm, to, to say a couple of words about how it was used in its original setting, because this psalm is uh, close to 3,000 years old. It's one of the older psalms based on how it was used. And I say that because this psalm was a coronation psalm. Uh, the Israelites during the kingdom era would have used, did use this psalm whenever they crowned a new king. So when one of David's descendants you know, died and then the next one became king, uh, you're actually looking at ancient liturgy. They would get this psalm out and they would use it as part of the ceremony of making that new king, of recognizing that new king. And so in its most immediate context, when it talks about rebelling against Yahweh and his anointed one, in its most immediate context, it's talking about the Davidic king, right? So it's talking about Solomon, Rehoboam, each one that came after, whether they were good or bad. That, that, the idea was um, is whoever's next in that Davidic line is appointed by God. That's how they understood, and they were right to understand it that way because of the Davidic covenant. And so the king who sat on David's throne was the king that God had raised up. And so the psalm was used in, its cor- in, in their coronations to recognize that the nations were God's enemies, and they were rebelling by rebelling against David's line, they were rebelling against God. So, so that's how the psalm was used 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. In the New Testament era, it takes on a whole new significance, right? So you and I living now after Jesus, it's very clear in the New Testament that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2. And so Luke 1, chapter 30, uh, Luke 1, 32 tells us that uh, Jesus, the, the child of Mary, uh, is going to sit on David's throne forever, right? So David's throne, who sits on David's throne right now? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth sits on David's throne. And so if this is a psalm about whoever sits on David's throne, well, from, from then on, it's Jesus. And so uh, this psalm is about Jesus. If you look in Acts chapter 4, there's a, it's a, verses 25 and 26, takes this psalm specifically and applies it very directly to Jesus and to the enemies of Jesus. And so Psalm 2 in its original setting is about the, the Israel but now in our understanding of things, now that Jesus has come and accomplished all of his work, the Messiah, the anointed one this psalm is talking about, this is a, a, a what do we call it, a messianic psalm. This is a psalm about Jesus. And so what's, what's the picture? You have these nations shaking their fist at, at God, and not just God, but, God's, but, but the anointed one, but Jesus. That's, that's what we have here. So how does the psalmist feel about this? How, how does, uh, what, what's his comment on this whole thing? Because you'd think the narrator writing the psalm might be a little afraid for, of what I've described to you, right? I mean, I mean, think about it for a second. If I told you, right, let's say an usher comes up and whispers in my ear, and then I say, hey, folks, there's a mob outside the church right now, right? And they've got clubs and sticks and stuff, and they're, they're, there's a mob in the parking lot. That might be a little concerning, right? We might be a little alarmed. At a minimum, you'd reach into your pocket for that key fob and make sure the car was locked, right? I mean, it would be a little alarming if we thought there was a mob. There's not, by the way. If we thought there was a mob, at least as far as I know, uh, out, out in the parking lot. But there's none of that with the psalmist, right? So he, he describes this 
again, it's easy to just kind of read this and go, oh, that's interesting, but, but that is, it, it is an intentionally terrifying picture in those verse, ver, first three words. And yet the psalmist is not concerned. He's not terrified. He's not alarmed. Uh, his main response is that he's offended because that's the tone you get in verses one through three as far as the psalmist is concerned. He's offended. How dare they? How dare they? Why do they do this? Do you see how it starts with this, this question that has no answer? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? What on earth are they thinking? That, that's the tone of that first verse. Uh, the word vain, why do they plot in vain? The word means useless or irrelevant. That, that's what the psalmist thinks about these rebels. They, they are useless. Their opposition to God is irrelevant. They don't pose any threat at all. You know what they're like? Uh, they're, they're like those little plastic army men some of us used to play with. I don't know if they still sell these. I hope they do. But, uh, you know, a lot of us had these when we were kids, and, and you'd line them up, and they'd have their little plastic bazooka or their little bayonet, or you know the ones I mean? You remember those? And, and it's like, maybe you've got 100,000 of those, right? You've been collecting them, and you've got 100,000, and you line your 100,000 plastic toy soldiers up on one side of the field, and you have the 82nd Airborne over here. And you say, go ahead, have at it. Right? It's ludicrous, right? It, it, it's a, it's, it's, if that's not a fight, that's funny. And, and that's the picture here. That's what's going on. That's how God looks at it. Look at the next stanza. This is where uh, the psalmist brings out the absurdity of their rebellion. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision or scoffs at them, another translation says. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The first few words, he doesn't even finish the sentence, the first few words tell us how much trouble these people are in. He who sits in the heavens... It's an intentional contrast with what we read in verse 2. Verse 2 talks about the kings of the earth. Now we're going to talk about the king of heaven. And so you've got the kings of the earth. They're down here going, Aah! and then you've got the, the king of heaven. He's kind of like, oh, I see you down there with your, your little rebellion, your, your petty little insurrection. I, I see what you're doing down there. And that's the tone of it. He, he, he looks down and he sees the rebellion. He sees their talk shows. He sees their books. He sees their mockumentaries and their podcasts and their landmark court cases. He sees it all and he laughs. God's not concerned about this stuff that gets us so upset sometimes. He looks down from on high and laughs, the psalmist says. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at the rebellion. That's verse 4. But then his scoffing, it's not that it's not serious, because it is serious. That's what you see in verse 5, because his laughter gives way to wrath. And so verse 5 says he speaks to them. He opens his mouth, and that's the end of the rebellion. You see, same, same picture you get in Revelation, when Christ opens his mouth in Revelation 19, and boom, that's the end of the fight. It's the same thing here. Uh, he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. Uh, they, they don't stand a chance, is, is the idea. He, he lets them rage for a season. And you and I know that, and we live in that season now. He lets them rage for a season, but that season will be over before they know it. And that right there, what I've just sketched for you in those six verses, that is a very good reason for you and me to trust in the Lordship of Jesus. It's a very good reason. Unless, of course, you like lost causes. I mean, if you like being on the losing end of things, then by all means, have at it. If you like being on the losing end of eternity, rebel to your heart's content. 
But if you want to come out on the winning end, if you want to be on the actual right side of history when all is said and done, then the very best thing that you can do is to trust in Jesus and submit your life to him. It is the very best thing to do. Turn away from man's rebellion, verses 1 through 3, and trust. Trust in the lordship of Jesus. That's reason number one. Trust in Jesus because not trusting in Jesus is not, is not a good path. It's not a good option. Number two, the second reason that trusting the Lord is the wisest way to live is that Jesus deserves our trust or he's worthy. He's worthy of our trust. You see, not only is Jesus guaranteed to win, which you, you see there in the first six verses, and actually it runs through the whole thing, but he's also worthy of it. So he's not a tyrant. He's worthy of our trust. He deserves our trust. Uh, And and the psalmist is going to give us two kind of categories here for why he's worthy of our trust. It's because of who he is and what he has. Who he is and what he has. Let's look at both. First of all, let's talk about who he is, who Jesus is. And the first part, I got two answers to this, Uh, who he is. The first one we've already alluded alluded to, but verse 6 brings it out clearly. It's that he's the king. So who is Jesus? Who is this anointed one talked about in the psalm? He's God's chosen king. Uh, Verse 6, as for me, and the narrator at that point becomes God. God is now talking, the Lord. As for me, the Father says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So like I said before, this was a coronation psalm. It was meant to emphasize that the line of David was the proper line. That was the line God had chosen to rule over Israel. Uh, And that's that's its, its immediate context. But we understand now that it's fulfilled in Jesus. And so he's saying here that Jesus is the king. So, I've installed my king. Who is Jesus? He's not just another religious leader. He's not just a good moral teacher from a few thousand years ago on the same par as Buddha and Krishna and whoever else people like to put forth. No, God says, no, no, that one's my king. That's the one I've installed on my holy hill. And so Jesus is the king, not just of Israel, but but he's he's the king of the whole world, and he's the rightful king because the highest of all authorities has installed him there. So he's the rightful king, the king that God himself has chosen. Uh, That's just part of it, though, because he's also something else. He's also God's beloved son. So he's God's chosen king, and he's God's beloved son. And uh, that's he expands on that in the the third stanza. So picking up in verse 7... and I will t- just, I'll tell you this on the front end so you can listen for it. Verses 7 through 9, now the king speaks. The king is going to speak now. So if it was the coronation ceremony, let's say it was Solomon, so these, these would be his lines, all right? This is what the king would say. And so from our perspective, it's Jesus, all right? So Jesus t- becomes the narrator now in verse 7. I will tell of the decree that was made about me. The Lord, and it's those small caps, so it's Yahweh, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now let me stop with that one. We're going to take this one one verse at a time. Uh, the, the, the king is speaking, verses 7 through 9. And the first thing he says is, He said to me, You are my son. You are my son. It, 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 it helps us really understand those, those key junctures in the ministry of Jesus when this happened. And so when Jesus was baptized, we immediately think of that. Right? We immediately think of that picture and in, 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 in what happened when Jesus was baptized. As, as he was coming up out of the water, a voice speaks from heaven. This is my son. 
There it is, right there. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased, he says. Uh, it, it happens again at the Mount of Transfiguration, much later in his ministry, closing in on the end. Uh, God again speaks an audible voice from heaven. This is my son whom I love. And then he says to the disciples listening, listen to him. This is my son. He's the one you need to submit to. You need to submit to. Listen to him. He's, he's the one who's, whom I've chosen. He's my son. He's my chosen king, my chosen son. Um, Years ago, when I was in college, I painted houses for the summer. Uh, it was kind of my, my summer job. I think I did it like three summers, actually. And uh, it was a small company in the small town I grew up in, and uh, it was owned by a man named Ron. Ron was the owner of the company. He was a friend of my dad, so it kind of helped. Uh, Ron, Ron gave me a job. And um, he, he, did a, he had a nice little business going, and in the height of the summer when things were busy, Ron would split his crews. It was kind of a one-man operation, but he'd have some of us who worked for him. And when it got really busy, height of the summer, he'd sometimes have two or even three crews working on different houses. And uh, I remember one job that I was at with him one, one summer, and I was probably there for the better part of a month, where uh, I worked with a guy named Jason. So Jason and I were together at this site, and there was one other guy. And, uh, and Ron was off on a different site. So he kind of would send us there, and then he would go work somewhere else. And let me tell you a little about Jason. Uh, Jason was a good guy. He was a really good guy. I actually graduated with him. We were the same age. Good, good guy. But, but he liked to imagine himself my boss. He, he really did. And he was a foot taller than I was. And I, mean, I could kind of see where he's coming from, why he would think that way, just in kind of the law of the jungle kind of things. But, but uh, he really did. He, when, when Ron wasn't there... Jason just assumed he was in charge, and so he would tell me what to paint and where to paint and how to paint and when I could take a break and all those different kind of things. And uh, like I said, I'm not trying to like settle old scores here, but but uh, he really was he really wasn't and is I hope still a, a good guy. But but he wasn't my boss. In actual fact, despite how he might like to approach uh, his workday, he was not my boss. Ron was my boss. Small company, he was my direct report, and at the end of the day, he was the one paying me at the end of every week. At the end of the day, Ron was the only one I needed to please, because he was the boss, despite what anybody else might want it to think. And I think you and I live with a very similar kind of reality, the same dynamics going on here in this psalm. You and I have lots of other bosses. We have lots of bosses in our lives who think they can tell us what to do. Right? We have a culture, we have an, uh, large sections of academia, we have large sections of media, large sections of government. There is no shortage of people who are sure they know how you and I should be living our lives. And here's the thing that Psalm 2 says, Jesus is the only boss that matters. And so if Jesus says do this and the culture says do that, you, you better do the one Jesus says, because Jesus is the only boss that matters. And so who he is, God's chosen king, God's beloved son, that's a big part of, of why, we should, why we should trust him, why he's so worthy of our trust. The other part of why Jesus is worthy of our trust, uh, like I said, it has to do with uh, what he has. So this psalm focuses on who he is, his identity, and also what he has. And uh, what he has is, is laid out for us in verses 8 and 9. Again, I'll take them one at a time. Uh, verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance or your heritage and the ends of the earth will be your possession. This is what God says to Jesus. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. So verse 8 shows us that the Father gives the Son authority. Jesus has authority over the nations. The, the, the nations, the peoples, they can rebel all they, want, all they want, but their rebellion doesn't change anything. 
It does not change any reality. Uh, actually, Andrew prayed it before. Jesus is, is, is in charge whether the world recognizes it or not. Uh, if you ask your five-year-old uh, to clean her room or to clean up her toys, and she puts her little fists on her, her little hips and says, you are not the boss of me, <laughs> nothing has changed. <laughs> she, can, she can say you're not the boss of me to her heart's content, but you are. You are the boss of her. She's five, and you're her mom, or you're her dad. And it's the same thing here. It's just just on a much, much bigger scale. Uh, Our rebellion doesn't change anything. God has given Jesus authority over this whole earth. That's what verse 8 says. That's what verse 8 says. Moreover, not only does he have the authority, he also has the power to back it up. And that's the other part. Uh, And it's it's in verse 9. You can see how the, the psalmist stacks them together here. Jesus speaking stacks them. He says, you, this is what the Father said to him, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You shall break them. Some translations might say rule, but it, 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 break is probably the better way to take it because it maintains the parallelism. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, both of those phrases... The, the breaking with the rod and the potter's vessel, they both refer to power. They're both a picture of power over enemies. And so an iron scepter, uh, it, it's actually a, a ceremonial weapon, a scepter. You've maybe seen pictures, a king has a scepter. Uh, but it was also a real weapon, right? So you can have the ceremonial one all encrusted with gold and jewels, but out in the battlefield, you might have a real scepter that was kind of like a mace, basically. And, and it's a weapon, and so it's, it's a power picture here. That's why it's a, a rod of iron. It's, it's, a, it's a weapon. And so the idea is that he can easily overcome this. It's not a threat. He has this iron weapon with which he will break his enemies. He will break them, it says. Strong picture, strong, strong picture. And then it brings in pottery. It talks about dashing them to pieces like pottery. Um, ancient pottery, if you think about pottery, uh, pottery is fragile. This would be true today, and it would be true in the ancient world, um, even more so in the ancient world. Uh, it's very useful. You can put some soup in your pottery bowl, uh, but if you drop it on the ground, it's going to break. It's going to break into a bunch of pieces if you drop that pottery bowl on the ground. If you take an iron scepter to it, <laughs> it's going to turn to dust. And if you start smashing that piece of pottery, that vase or whatever it is, uh, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really broke. And so both, uh, both parts of that verse 9 have to do with the ease of Christ's victory over his enemies, the, the uh, ease of his reign over the nations. Uh, it, it doesn't, he doesn't even have to expend any effort, right? That, that's the picture you get there in verse 9. And so I'm going to put all of that together, everything you see up there on that slide, everything I said for the last uh, seven or eight minutes, all of it together is, is reminding us he is worthy. He is worthy. He has the power, he has the authority, he has the goodness, he has the point of position appointed by a, a worthy God, and so he is worthy of our faith, he's worthy of our trust. The third reason this psalm gives us to trust the Lord, uh, is that it pleases God when we do. God is pleased. That's the third reason. God is pleased with those who trust in Jesus. And this is why Psalm 2 ends the way that it does. I I mentioned that ending. The last words of Psalm 2 are, all who take refuge in him are blessed. And the idea of that, that idea idea of blessing in this context, in this passage, uh, is, is that God is pleased. 
Right? That's what's, and so applying this through the lens of Jesus, if you trust in Jesus rather than join those nations in their rebellion, then God is pleased. You have God's stamp of approval. Sometimes the Bible will talk about blessings in terms of you know, health or prosperity or that sort of thing. There are certainly verses that do talk that way, but the, the default, the majority of them, is to talk in terms of God looks and God is pleased because that is the right way to live. Think in terms of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, and so on. Um, if you go through all of those, the idea is that's a life that's an approach to life. That's a way of living that is pleasing to God. And so Psalm 2 ends with this, this promise that all who trust in him, all who take refuge in him, have his stamp of approval, which is really important. We can actually import here a whole lot of our New Testament theology, Be, you know, justification by faith, for starters. When God looks at us, he's not looking at, right? So God's in heaven, and he's like, am I pleased with her today? Am I pleased with him today? Well, let's see how many good deeds she did. Let's see how successful his business was last week. Let's see how good of grades he got or how he did on that test. No, those are never God's measures. Never, ever, ever. God is not measuring us by our success. And he's not cutting us off by our stumblings and our shortcomings. He is measuring us on one thing and one thing only. Are you trusting in me, in Jesus? Are you trusting in his son? If you are, if you're doing, and I'm gonna, I'll show you in a minute with the last stanza here, but if you're doing what the last stanza tells you to do, then God is pleased. He's pleased. He's pleased. Uh, that is set up in stark contrast, so it ends, I, I went to the end of that stanza first, that, that, the way it ends is in contrast to the rest of the words in that stanza. So, so look at verse 10. I'll, I'll read all of it here. Uh, and uh, you, you, it's the conclusion to the matter, right? Now, therefore... O kings. So the narrator takes over again, and he's addressing the people from verses 1 through 3. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. By the way, I'm going to tell you right here that the he in that verse 12 is God the Father. It's not the son. So, he, so the narrator says, kiss the son, I'll explain that in a minute, lest he, God the Father, who appointed him to his position, be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath, God's wrath, is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. They cannot say he didn't warn them. I think that's what's going on there. They, the nations, the peoples of the earth cannot say that God never told them what would happen. He actually tells, tells, tells them quite plainly, be warned, right? Lest they missed it. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. If you rebel against God's chosen son, his chosen king, his son, you are playing a very, very dangerous game. That's, that's the warning. And yet I want us to notice something here because what, what we need to notice is that even the warning comes with grace. Even the warning comes with grace. Uh, he, he warns them about judgment, but then he says, be wise. That's an invitation. Be wise, O kings. Even as he's warning them about judgment, if they don't repent, he's putting out his hand and saying, but repent. He's offering that chance to repent. And, and that's what kiss the sun is about. A, a strange picture to us. In fact, some translations just kind of wash it out and put something that's equivalent to it, but kiss the sun is what it says. Kiss the sun. And the idea there is, is to submit. It is a picture of submission. Submit uh, to Jesus is, is, is the idea. 
let, let me say it this way. Because we're, the equation we have to make in our brains is that trusting, that taking refuge of the end of the psalm, is equated in this psalm to submission. Right? So it's talking about trust, which is why I'm using that language this morning. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. But what does it look like to take refuge in him? It's kissing the sun. Kiss the sun. And so we, we really have to understand when we're talking about trusting, sometimes we water down trusting and we make it, uh, we, we make it weak. We make the concept of trusting God weak. Uh, let, let me put it this way. If we think that we can bring Jesus on board as a consultant, kind of, hey, Jesus, I got this problem. I'm thinking, what, what do you think I should do, Jesus? I, think I want to take your advice under, consult, on, under advisement here while I make this decision. Uh, if, if we think of Jesus as a consultant, I will tell you, he does not want the job. He's already got a way better job, right? He doesn't need to be our consultant. He's not our, he, he's not our co-pilot, kind of here, I'm tired of driving Jesus, you drive for a while. What an awful picture. He's not your navigator, kind of, you know, Mr. Sulu, make it so, you know. I mean, no, and the problem with all of those substandard pictures is they put you and me in the driver's seat. Right? He's the navigator. He's the co-pilot. No, he doesn't want any of those jobs. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And, and trusting him, therefore, in the, in, the, in the psalm means submitting to him. Submitting to him in every part of our lives. And, again, now, and, and that's what Kiss the Sun is about. Um, the Son is the chosen king. So, so to understand this psalm, first you've got to understand it through its original lens. Uh, this is used for uh, uh, the coronation of a great king. And, and Israel, at its height of its power, she, she lost a lot of power as time went on and was eventually defeated because of her sin. Uh, but, but when she's not sinning, when, when she's trusting in the Lord, um, God says to the nations, kiss the sun. In the ancient world, this was an act of submission. Uh, if, if you and I were diplomats living... 3,000 years ago, 2,800 years ago, 2,500 years ago, and we were from a different nation, and we came before the great king, whoever, you know, the Babylonians or the Assyrians, whoever, we were brought before that king. We didn't kind of, you know, give him a salute or even a polite bow. We prostrated ourselves on the ground, and we would kiss his feet. We would kiss the king's feet. Uh, that, that was, again, you know, it's not universal, it was different kings, but the, the great ones, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, this was the gesture. You say, I wouldn't want to do that. No, you wouldn't want to do it, but if you don't want him to bring his army and destroy your city, you're going to do it. You kiss the sun. It, it's a picture of, in its context, this psalm offers us this as a picture of submission. It's a submission to the sun. And I, maybe it's a little uncomfortable to think about Jesus that way, but you have to understand his goodness and his right, to reign, his right to rule and all the rest of that. And then the invitation at the end, because if we will submit to him, he's not going to oppress us and rule over us the way an ancient Near Eastern king would have done. He's going to provide everything we need. That, that's the picture. And so that's why it ends the way it does. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him by submitting to him, by kissing the sun. And so God is pleased. It's, it's God is pleased with those who trust in Jesus. That's how we get God's stamp of approval on our lives. Brennan Manning, uh, he was an author more popular a few years ago, but I think some of his books are still around. Uh, he, he tells a story in one of his books about a, uh, a professor. It's actually a Catholic professor, a philosophy professor named John Cavanaugh. 
And uh, Kavanaugh is probably best known. I think he may have passed away now, but he was kind of a, an expert, if I can put it that way, on Mother Teresa. I think he wrote a biography of her. And, and so he's kind of an expert on Mother Teresa. And uh, Manning tells a story about Kavanaugh where uh, Kavanaugh was a young man, so kind of late 60s, early 70s, that era. And um, he was, you know, like you are when you're that age, sometimes he was trying to figure out what to do with his life. And so he, he kind of had some different options in front of him. He could become an academic. He could do this. He could do that. He had a few different options, and he couldn't figure out what God wanted him to do, this, this, uh, this man. And so he actually decided to go on a little bit of a, a vision quest of sorts, and he volunteered to go work with Mother Teresa. This is where he, kind of where his, uh, his intersection with her began. And he actually went to, he was Catholic, and, and he went to India, and he spent three months working at her mission there among the poorest people, some of the very poorest people in the world, sick, dying, lepers, and so on, there in the 1970s in Calcutta. And, uh, and so he, he gets there, and relatively early, some early part in his time there, he actually met her. So, you know, she was a busy woman, but he actually had the chance to meet Mother Teresa. And, uh, and she actually asked him a question. She said to him, what can I do for you? Which is a striking statement if you think about it, because he's there to help her. But she meets him and she says, what can I do for you? How can I help you? And uh, he thought for a moment and he said, well, would you pray for me? You know, she had this reputation for being a holy woman. Would you pray for me? And uh, she said, what do you want me to pray? What, I'll often try to do that. You know, somebody says, pray for me. Oh, well, what do you want me to pray for? And so he thought about it for a second, and he thought about these decisions he was facing, and he said, pray that I have clarity. I need clarity. Pray that I know what to do. Pray for clarity. Uh, to his surprise, she said, no. Now, she was a very small woman, and she's kind of looking up at him, and she says, no, I won't pray for clarity. And he was flustered, and he basically kind of spit out, why not? <laughs> why won't you pray for clarity? And she said to him, clarity is the last thing you need. And he pushed back one more time, and he said, but, but I'm thinking about you. You have so much clarity about your calling. You have the clarity that I long for, he told her. Uh, to which she said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. And so that's what I will pray for you, she said. I will pray that you trust God. I don't know what you're facing today. This many people, there's dozens of things uh, that, that are going on. Some of, you are, some of you feel like you need clarity. Uh, you have some big decision you need to make or something you're trying to figure out. Some of you need provision. Some of you are suffering. Some of you are grieving. Uh, some of you things are going pretty good. You're not quite sure what you'd say, but uh, there's all these different things. But, but whatever it is, whatever you're facing, it all comes down to trust. It all comes down to trust. And Psalm 2 reminds us there is no one better to trust than Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, that's, uh, that's what I want to pray this morning for myself and for my brothers and sisters here as we uh, prepare our hearts now for communion and just to remember Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. I want to pray you'd help us to trust you, Jesus. Um, I'm tempted to ask for clarity because I'm sure some could use it, but uh, we won't. We might ask for strength or peace or a way out or for healing, and all of those are legitimate things to pray for. But today, right now, I'm simply going to ask that you'd help us to trust you. Build up our trust. Build up our faith. Help us uh, to, to take internally the message of this psalm and, and not to see it as a club to be wielded against uh, people we disagree with. We could certainly go that way with it, uh, but that's not what it's for. It's, it's there to call uh, us to to that submission and that trust, that taking refuge, which is held up for us here. And so that's what we do today. We take refuge in you, God. 
Uh, Lord, I pray as we do come now to the table that you would um, bring to mind any sins that we need to repent of, anything that we've been, uh, any wickedness that we've been giving safe harbor to in our own lives. We, we, re- we turn from that. We confess it to you. And uh, we pray that you would uh, clean us, Lord, wash us, wash our feet that way in that sense of washing away that, that sin that uh, accumulates in our lives sometimes because we get careless. And so we would pray that you would do that. And now, uh, Lord, fill our hearts with joy as we come to your table uh, together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.